So before we started this week, guys, I thought we could put on some mood music. Oh. Hmm. Oh wait, wrong one. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Nice. That always puts me in a good mood. <laughs> so welcome back to the Motown edition of This Is Comp, where Discord and Rhyme talks about compilations and box sets, artist by artist, song by song. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Discord Pod, and you can get early access to these episodes by signing up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash Discord Pod. Okay, roll call time. Rich Bennell. Ben Marlin. And John McFerrin. Okay, so this week we are finishing up disc four of Motown The Complete Number Ones, and we are going to go through tracks 14 through 19 on this one. Um, any opening thoughts on this? Mm, no, nothing interesting here. Those are good numbers. Nothing important. Yeah, good numbers. A few good songs on this one. <laughs> nothing important at all. So uh, on that note, let's start off with Stevie Wonder's Superstition. Who? <laughs> Stevie Wonder, I could point you to about 15 previous episodes of Discord and Rhyme for a lot of backstory on the guy. Seriously, Superstition is the first single from Stevie's amazing 1972 album, Talking Book. Superstition reached number one on the Hot 100, and on the Cashbox chart, it reached Who Cares? It came (laughs) nine years after Stevie's previous number one hit on the Hot 100, which was 1963's Fingertips Part 2. Of course, that didn't prevent the shifty accountants at Motown from including a whopping eight alleged number ones from Stevie Wonder in the years between on this compilation. You all should be grateful that we're on this case. One day we're going to bring down their whole operation. Anyway, Superstition is a funk classic. It was written for guitarist Jeff Beck, formerly of the Yardbirds, who came up with the iconic opening drum beat while he was jamming with Stevie. But while Beck eventually recorded it, Stevie recorded and released his version first, because, as some guy said a few years later, that's what friends are for. Here's a clip of the Jeff Beck version, which did eventually come out. Yeah, and this is from the 1973 album Beck, Bogart, and a Piece. On Stevie's version, Stevie sings, and he plays the clavinet, drums, and the Moog bass. The only other artists on the recording are Trevor Lawrence on tenor sax and Steve Medeo on trumpet. 
Even though it's been on nonstop radio rotation for the past 48 years, and it's a certified banger per Rich's stringent certification system, I still never think of Superstition as a single. It just seems too big to be contained on one side of a 45. It's in a category by itself. It's a powerhouse. If you put Superstition on your turntable, you don't hear a song so much as experience the Kool-Aid man busting out of it. It's a classic and a deserved number one hit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> John, what do you think? I mean, what the hell do you want me to say? It's superstition. Yeah, of this incredibly famous song. It's the Stevie Wonder song that you know before what either a song or a Stevie Wonder is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Perhaps more than any other song, it's the track that best illustrates why I love the clavinet so much as an instrument. And that's just one of many things I adore about it. I would like to mention a couple of things about the song that are tangential. First, if you've never seen the video of him playing Superstition on Sesame Street, <laughs> then get right on that. <laughs> Those kids dancing on the set are having a blast, and the entire thing is pure joy. Second, I have a story to tell about when I first purchased Talking Book, a story I tell without any exaggeration. I bought the album Talking Book from a Best Buy in 2000, my junior year of college. I got in the car put the album in the CD player, and decided to immediately put it on Superstition, even though the album didn't open with it. Since it was a warm day, I also decided to roll down the window. And as I sat at an intersection waiting to drive out of the parking lot, a car with four African-American men pulled up next to me on my left. They apparently could hear what I was listening to, because when I looked over... All four of them had turned towards me and were bopping their heads in unison. And they gave me approving looks as we each drove away. It's one of my very favorite things that's ever happened. <laughs> that's delightful, John. So I want to go to the... So that clavinet riff, I've read that it's like eight parts put together, which I think is wow. interesting. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really, really... The song is like a true like studio concoction. Uh, like a lot of the stuff from this period. Uh, I actually remember this being the song that first drew me to Stevie Wonder. Like, it, it was playing in a compilation commercial, just hearing that riff. it's a, That's a rock riff being played on the on the clavinet. That's a guitar riff. It's a, it felt really similar to the stuff my dad would play. So I was intrigued, and it drew me into the wider world of Stevie Wonder. Well, it sounds so much better on the clavinet than it does on the guitar. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds fine, but it sounds like, Almost like a mediocre Led Zeppelin song filtered through Jeff Beck. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't sound <laughs> right, but it sounds perfectly right with Stevie. Yeah. Well, it sounds at home, like in the Jeff Beck version being played on a guitar. Like the Jeff the Jeff Beck version is good, but it was clearly not destined to be the classic. Right. And didn't Led Zeppelin kind of rip this riff yes. for a Trampled Underfoot? Oh, they did. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, trampled Underfoot is, is, is a really good song. I like it, but yeah, it's... They, they pilfered from superstition for it. And then Franz Ferdinand took uh, Trampled Underfoot and turned it into Take Me Out. Yeah. Man, so that's just like two layers of Overcooked right there. Yep. <laughs> but uh, we will talk about Stevie Wonder again, perhaps very soon. What? <laughs> but let's go on to Gladys Knight and the Pips. They're back with neither one of us, open parentheses, wants to be the first to say goodbye, close parentheses. <laughs> Whew, these titles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like a meatloaf title. Sad to think we're not gonna make it. 
Neither one of us, open parenthesis, wants to be the first to say goodbye, close parenthesis, was released as a single on December 26th, 1972, and reached number one on the R&B chart during the week ending March 17th, 1973. It also reached number one on the Cashbox and Record World charts, but stalled out at number two on the Pop chart. It was blocked by The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia by Vicki Lawrence. That's the night that the lights went out in Georgia. That's the night that they hung an innocent man. Well, don't trust you. Written by Jim Weatherly, who would go on to have a long and successful songwriting career, this was the group's final single with Motown before they left. The group and the label had always held strongly differing views concerning their value and importance to Motown. And in late 1972, the group pressed Motown to renegotiate their contract. By early 1973, it became clear that the two sides could not come to an agreement. And in January 1973, Motown decided to move on without them. The group quickly signed with Buddha Records in February, and this meant that by the time neither one of us had become a number one single for Motown and for Gladys Knight and the Pips, the group was long gone. In a way, Motown letting them go just after they had released their biggest hit since I Heard It Through the Grapevine seems fitting, given how much Motown had always taken them for granted, which left Gladys Knight with a not unjustified sense of bitterness in the ensuing decades. Regarding the song itself, I'm actually not entirely sure how I feel about it. I definitely understand why it was such a big hit and why it won them a Grammy in 1974. I like the arrangement a lot, a very tasteful and well-considered mixture of acoustic guitar, electric piano, strings, and little touches of electric guitar. And I enjoy the passionate and rich singing from Gladys quite a bit. At the same time, though, this strikes me as a song that's much more about providing a positive general impression than of having anything especially memorable or striking in the melody. And that's where it falls down a little bit for me. I think that my issues with the song probably have less to do with the song itself than with the general direction that much of middle-of-the-road pop music was beginning to take at this time. And if forced to give a binary assessment of the song, I'd probably say I like it rather than not. Yet I also find it a little bit of a letdown relative to the previous entries from this group on this set. Finally, it's worth noting that Motown found a way to temporarily screw over Gladys Knight and the <laughs> Pips using this song, even as it became a monster hit in the wake of the split between the label and the group. Soon after joining Buddha Records, the group released a new single, Where Peaceful Waters Flow, also written by Jim Weatherly. The song struggled some on the charts, peaking at only number 28 on the pop chart, and part of the reason was that Motown aggressively pushed radio stations to keep playing Neither One of Us rather than the band's newest single with a new label. Fortunately, Gladys Knight and the Pips ultimately had the last laugh. In August 1973, the group released Midnight Train to Georgia, another Grammy winner, and possibly its most iconic song. Now be with him. I know you will. On that midnight train to Georgia. Even on a midnight train. Hey, hey, hey. 
And while Motown attempted once again to interfere with the group's success by releasing a leftover called Daddy Could Swear, I Declare, Midnight Train to Georgia ultimately topped both the pop and R&B charts, allowing Gladys Knight and the Pips, at least for the time being, to have a better life outside of Motown than they ever did inside. Uh, Ben, what do you think? I'm on board with John's ambivalence here. Uh, This doesn't feel like a single, let alone a number one single. It's a perfectly nice song. The arrangement is lush and romantic. It's pretty. Of course, the pips contribute their usual one-of-a-kind, inimitable backing vocals, just stealing the show, as always. Mm. But in all seriousness, I can't ever complain about Gladys Knight's rich, emotive voice. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's a stone legend and one of my two favorite Mormons. (laughs) But the song itself, it doesn't bang. It, It taps gently and soothingly, and... That's fine, I guess. I agree, Ben. Ken Jennings is great. <laughs> Steve Young seems pretty all right. Mm. Yeah, so, but well, I agree about Gladys Knight's vocals. I, I really wish they had more hits in general for Motown because uh, she, she, has, she, has a, she has a completely different, like, timbre of vocals that you just don't really get across other Motown singles. But uh, one thing I've learned in the last couple of days is that this song has kind of taken on a second life uh, in the 2000s because it's been sampled heavily in house music in the last couple of decades really mm. yeah uh, it, i can't it's believe become... i missed that <laughs> <laughs> i have a few clips here because uh, it's become kind of a meme in recent decades so this uh this is last jungle by sub focus when I'm on E, I'm, I'm just not paying attention to where the samples come from. Well, you gotta drink some water, Ben. <laughs> and this is Final Credits by Midland. Wow. Yeah, kind of video gamey. <laughs> And finally, this is a really recent one. This is Pick Up by DJ Coz. I guess neither one of us wants to be the first to say. And this one just uses like really sparse pieces of, uh, of neither one of us, uh, like sprinkled throughout a seven or eight minute song. Pretty cool. I like this. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, this one's my favorite. The song needed a little life. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like you guys. I didn't really think much of neither one of us. Uh, it's a pretty average ballad, but apparently that that's what I love. Like uh, that house musicians have just kind of turned into a meme or something. And <laughs> I love when an average song can take on a second life like that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so let's go on to the next track. This is the Temptations with Masterpiece. Ah. <laughs> ah. I lived in a place they called the inner city. Getting ahead was strictly a no-no. Cause nobody cares what happens to the folks that live in the ghetto. Thousands of lives wasting away. People living from day to day. It's a challenge just staying alive. Cause in the ghetto.
never heard this ever. I mean, if it was a hit, I'd, I've never heard it on the radio. I have a Temptations compilation separate from this set, so I had, I had heard it a couple times, but I never thought about it. I, I was shocked to see this as a number one. Masterpiece was released in February 1973, and it hit number one on Billboard R&B and number seven on the Hot 100. Underneath, tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree by Dawn featuring Tony Orlando. Please don't clip it. By Dawn featuring Tony Orlando. Sorry, Ben, I'm going to clip it. No, please don't. Well, tie a yellow ribbon round the old tree. It's been three long years. To- of course I'm going to clip it. Let's go burn down his house. <laughs> no, no, that's not nice, John. Uh, Let's go so save Masterpie- his house. <laughs> that's better. So Masterpiece was written and produced by Norman Whitfield, in case you couldn't tell once again. Uh, so by this point, Motown had completely moved its base of operations to Los Angeles, and Barrett Strong had left for Epic Records, which uh, left Norman Whitfield to his own devices as writer and producer. This is the full, uncut Norman Whitfield right here. <laughs> This is about as Norman Whitfield as it gets. So the title, that's a masterpiece as in Norman Whitfield's masterpiece, not The Temptations. And the album cover is a portrait of The Temptations chiseled in stone with by Norman Whitfield at the bottom of the frame, like it's wow. a work of art being hung in a gallery. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah, it's both ridiculous and it's an interesting example of how producers were, try- were starting to break out as names in their own right in the early 70s. So go that i guess <laughs> uh so the full version of this track uh this is another 12 minute wonder it runs 12 minutes and takes up nearly all of side one of the lp uh but the, but on this one the temptations themselves sing on only three minutes of the song wow yeah yeah fans got really irritated at this and critics started to refer to the group as quote the norman whitfield choral singers <laughs> uh, so this is basically when the bubble burst on the whole psychedelic soul thing and you know disco just took over instead which uh, i'm in favor of that yep. so uh but to be continued uh but yeah Ma- masterpiece is interesting but it's just kind of a mess it's trying to do like too many things at once the way that the um the way that the spoken word just kind of smashes into the song it kind of it kind of reminds me of the murder mystery by the velvet underground oh yeah like a weird like funk version of that hmm. what do you think john the 70s were ridiculous <laughs> but yeah. they also ruled but they were also ridiculous. The full 14-minute version of this is basically Tales from Temptation Graphic Oceans. Ooh. And I could totally see why both the group and the fans who listened to this thought this way too excessive. And yet, while there is an upper limit to how much Funk Brothers and orchestration I want to hear in the absence of vocals, the single version of this achieves a good enough balance between the instrumental parts and the vocals. And what's here is tons of fun. With that said, as cool as they sound on a certain level, I also find the deep-voiced stealing cars, robbing bars line pretty hilarious in an unintentional comedy sort of way. Overall, this song is a lot of fun, and it's yet another reminder that the temptations go way beyond the stereotypical perception of the group but I definitely wouldn't put it in a 10 songs you should hear to get into the Temptations mix or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the song has an excellent bass line, just the top of the line bass line. From what I've read about Norman Whitfield, he had sharp musical instincts, but he wasn't really a musician. He was kind of a cobbler. He would take this bit of melody from one song and that drum beat from another song. 
He'd pay his session musicians for any interesting licks or riff they came up with while they were jamming, and then he would fuse it all into something that was sort of original. My guess is that in some obscure record from the late 60s, there's a guitar line or a piano line that sounds a lot like this bass line, mm. uh, but I don't know what it is. Um, and in any case, it's used to great effect here. Aside mm. from the bass line, it's not as interesting as The Temptations' other hit funk epics. Uh, there's no melody or chorus to speak of. The Temptations sing it wonderfully, but there's not much for them to sing. But that's still the Funk Brothers doing the backing here. And one thing I was actually wondering, um, if it, Ben, if you know anything about this, like uh, Motown had moved operations to Los Angeles by this point, but were the Funk Brothers still, like, did any of them move to Los Angeles? Like, were they still, like, performing in Detroit? And uh, I, I guess I should have done my research for this. No, some of them did. Um, so, I mean, I read the book on James Jamerson, the bass player, and it's kind of sad in that... He did go out to L.A. He followed Motown out there, and his life just kind of spiraled. He just mm-hmm. – he, he could not find a good life out there. He couldn't he, – he wasn't able to find good sessions to play. So the answer is yes, but not to great effect. Oh, well, that's terrible. Yeah. Well, on that <laughs> note, let's get back to Stevie Wonder. So this, is, uh, so this is another one from Talking Book. This is You Are the Sunshine of My Life. song is good (laughs) you are the sunshine of my life was the second single from stevie's 1972 masterpiece masterpiece i mean talking (laughs) book it went to actual number one on the billboard hot 100 stevie's third time at the top of the charts but his 58th appearance on this compilation it also went to number one on Cashbox because for once they weren't being contrarian idiots The song won the Grammy that year for Best Male Pop Vocal Performance. Interestingly, the first two lines are not sung by Stevie, but by Jim Gilstrap and Lonnie Groves, respectively. I've never figured out why Stevie did that, though it does make for a spectacular effect when he does come in on the third verse. Mm -hmm. After Stevie's friends do their bit, he jumps in and kind of says, All right, you've suffered long enough. Now here's some real music. Uh, again, that's what friends, etc., etc. The thing is, he doesn't overpromise. You Are the Sunshine of My Life is a phenomenal love song. It's delicate, romantic, propulsive, beautiful, just absolutely immortal. It would be easy to lose this among other easy listening-ish classics out there, but it would be a mistake. If it's softer than most of Stevie's music, at least up until that point, doesn't change the fact that it's a sublime piece of music. 
Yeah, I love those Relay Race style vocals at the beginning. It's actually the same technique as in Prince's 1999, like with uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, like with Des Dickerson on the first line, then Wendy and Lisa, and then Prince. It, it adds a sense of drama to when Stevie finally shows up, uh, and then they all come together uh, in the harmonies and the chorus. As much as I love all of the songs that we've covered so far, like uh, it, it's it's easy to forget that he got even better after all of the ones that we've covered. Like uh, these songs uh, between this and Superstition and the songs on that album in general, like this is really where Stevie rises to a higher tier, like where his songs kind of, uh, I guess, expand into widescreen for me uh, mm. is, is a way of putting it. Also, in particular, like um, I, I like the whole idea of Talking Book, the album title, because like a. So I personally always thought of albums as sort of like the books of music. And it turns out that Stevie Wonder came up with that a decade before I was even born uh, because he like thought of albums as books with like the songs as little chapters. And I don't know, like uh, that, that says that says a lot about his music to me. Like when you listen to Talking Book, like uh, it, it does one of my favorite things in music, which is where every song like really genuinely tries to present a new experience. And You Are the Sunshine of My Life is definitely like cut from that cloth. Really like that. I don't immediately think of this as one of my very favorite Stevie tunes, but I totally get why it became one of his most iconic songs almost immediately, and I still love it a lot. I'm still not entirely sure how I feel about the horns in the single version relative to the album <laughs> version, but at worst, they don't really hurt anything, and they make for an interesting alternate version that I don't mind hearing from time to time. I still like a handful of songs on Talking Book more than this like Superstition or Blame It on the Sun or I believe, open parenthesis, when I fall in love, it will be forever, <laughs> close parenthesis. But it is yep. still absolutely top-notch. Like, he was he was really on one at that time. Talking Book is one of those, like, you can just, like, you know, shuffle a couple of random songs and get just masterpieces. Yep. And not in the Temptations masterpiece <laughs> sense. I would say we should cover it if we hadn't already covered Stevie Wonder twice and no. then, you know, a third time throughout the yeah. Motown compilation. Well, this was a good mini episode then. I like that. Okay, let's move on to the next song. Maybe Your Baby by Stevie Wonder. No, <laughs> this is Touch Me in the Morning by Diana Ross. No, let's do the other one. <laughs> Wasn't it me who said that nothing good's gonna last forever? in the Morning, written by Ron Miller and Michael Masser, and produced by Michael Masser and Tom Baird, was released as a single on May 3, 1973. It reached number one on the adult contemporary Easy Listening chart during the week ending July 28, 1973, and also reached number one on the pop chart during the week ending August 18th. Since we last heard her on this set, Diana had somewhat taken a detour with her solo career. 
Since I'm Still Waiting left us collectively underwhelmed, she had starred in the 1972 film Lady Scenes the Blues, a biopic about Billie Holiday that received mixed reviews overall, but that nonetheless led to Diana receiving an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress, which she lost to Liza Minnelli for Cabaret. She also recorded a collection of Billie Holiday covers for the soundtrack. And while critical reception of this soundtrack was also mixed, it sold very well and topped the U.S. Billboard charts. Motown then released a greatest hits collection of her solo material to buy her some time as she recorded a new album, also called Touch Me in the Morning, which was released in June 1973, a month and a half after the lead single. This song for me is the Diana Ross solo experience in total. (laughs) There are parts of it, like the slow opening vocal part primarily over piano, that I find flat out boring, even if I like the sound of the piano as its own entity. There are parts of it, like the lyrics starting with, wasn't it me who said that nothing good's going to last forever through everybody's got their life to live that I find schlocky and a little (laughs) eye-rolling. But... (laughs) On the other hand, there are parts of it, like when it starts to speed up with, well, I can say goodbye in the cold morning light through the ecstatic, don't you know I need to have tonight when you're gone till you go, that turns into the gently erotic, I need to lie here and think about the last time that you'll touch me in the morning, where I'm absolutely sucked in and will 100% turn up the volume and sing along Mm -hmm. if I'm in the car. It's terrible. It's great. It's (laughs) terra-great. (laughs) It's 70s solo Diana Ross. And hey, there are some nice horn flourishes that pop up here and there that work really well as a nice counter to Diana's diva inferno. Do you roll down the windows when you're singing along to this in the car, John? (laughs) I I think about it. Maybe if the weather's warmer. (laughs) Uh, Ben, what do you think? I think that was a really good analysis, first off. Um, Yeah, I mean, John is right that this is schlocky, but it is likable schlock. Uh, It's well-written with an effective hook, and Diana sings it beautifully. Uh, She sings with a richer tone than I usually associate with her, especially while she's belting out the title phrase. I don't think there's a lot of depth to the song, so I don't have a ton to say about it. I will say that I like the the rhythmic guitar chanks in, in the background of part of the song. This sounds Mm -hmm. nothing like a Motown song, and in the 1970s, it probably shouldn't, because everyone does have to move on sometime. But I appreciate that subtle holdout from their classic period. I am just not on board with most of these solo Diana Ross songs so (laughs) far, I gotta say. Yeah, I'm worried I'm being disrespectful to her, but I don't know. I I like the up-tempo disco part of the song. Like, this does seem to, like, harken forth toward toward disco. And again, disco so bad. Yeah, I love disco, so I can't wait for that to show up. But I I don't like the entire arrangement, like, with the ballady section at the beginning and then the spoken word section coming out of the chorus. It it just makes it feel like a musical number to me. And I, Mm. I, I don't hate musicals. In fact, I... There are a lot of musicals I love, but like, like there's something about like You Are the Sunshine of My Life that feels like it could have been in a musical, but like in a good way. But <laughs> uh, whereas like this, maybe it's because Diana Ross was like actually in like in movies and stage productions by this point that this like kind of has like more of a schlocky campness to it that I'm not really a fan of. I mean, that's a really, really great chorus. I just kind of, like, wish that that, like, part of the song had been plucked out. Like, say, mm-hmm. the, uh, like, say Gladys Knight's vocals from Neither One of Us and various, you know, house stompers. <laughs> yeah. No, I so totally house agree. music, get on this. I yeah. totally agree with you. Like, it's it's a song that 
the mixture of the good and the bad, like I kind of find infuriating because, and I just want someone to just dig in and just grab the good part mm-hmm. and figure out how to to repurpose it. Yeah, but let's get on to "Let's Get It On" by Marvin Gaye. up in here <laughs> so Mr. let's Bunnell, get it on. are you trying to seduce me <laughs> so let's get it on was released in june 1973 and it topped both the hot 100 and r&b charts lots of actual number ones in this batch we don't have a lot of tony orlando songs to throw at you this time <laughs> uh so this was written by marvin gay and ed townsend and produced by marvin gay so this song is kind of hard to separate from the whole sort of milieu it's created at this point. Like it's it's been in a ton of movies and probably most memorably sung by Jack Black at the end of the movie High Fidelity. But even beyond its use in soundtracks, it's also it's become just basically an audio cue, like used in movie trailers and commercials to set a sort of like sexy times, sensual tone when it's needed. I, I just looking it up on YouTube, I saw it in like a coffee commercial for just like just, with just the song playing, like panning over a coffee maker because they want the coffee to look sexy. <laughs> so as a result, I can't turn on this song without laughing, which kind of sucks because it's a really remarkable song. And, and in, in its own way, it's every bit as influential as a song like What's Going On. So unless I'm missing something, this is the first sex jam. And I, I don't mean that earlier songs weren't like sexual or about sex, but this is the one where Mar- Marvin Gaye just does away with the innuendo and gets down to business. Like <laughs> uh, I listened to the entire Let's Get It On album earlier today. It's really, really good. But the whole album is like that. L- like there's a track called Keep Getting It On. Like he checks back in on you later on the album. <laughs> still getting it on? <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, are you still getting? Okay, good, good. Uh, and then there's the single You Sure Love to Ball. <laughs> and that's not basketball he's talking about uh, and i'm tr- so i'm treating this whole subject lightly but the truth was that marvin Gaye had a very complicated relationship with sex and that that stemmed from his abusive upbringing uh, and so the whole let's get it on album was actually intended as a form of sexual and spiritual epiphany with love and romance used as a metaphor for god's love so there are a lot of layers to that song that you heard in Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. <laughs> uh, John, what about you? I'll get to it in a second, but I need a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even smoke. <laughs> and John is back from his cigarette. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. 
enough children have been conceived to this song to populate a continent. <laughs> I'm not even sure how you evaluate this as a musical composition at this point, <laughs> even though it has such clearly top-shelf aspects, such as that spectacular steady bass part, the steady drumming, that perfect opening guitar line, and layers upon layers of cooing Marvin vocals. I think what's most interesting about the song broadly is something Rich alluded to. It's that even if the subject matter is clearly different from the philosophical ruminations that drove What's Going On and the canceled You're the Man project, the song takes on sex in a way that still sounds like it was plausibly made by the same person who made those albums and the singles that came from them. The song is about sex, but it's about sex in the same way that the Song of Solomon from the Hebrew Bible is about sex. For all of the surface elements, there is a feeling that something deep and contemplative is happening under the surface. And this gives the song a sense of classiness that overcomes any way for the song to feel excessively smutty. In conclusion, an additional 50 children have come into being to this song <laughs> since I began to talk about it. Ben, what about you? So, coming after the song Touch Me in the Morning, Let's Get It On marks the sixth song out of six on this episode with a title that is just graphic sexual innuendo. And don't pretend <laughs> you didn't catch the euphemisms in the other song titles. We've seen the sur- masterpiece. We've seen the survey results. We know that every single one of our listeners is a disgusting degenerate pervert. Hmm. That's patreon.com forward slash discord pod, by the way, <laughs> if you want to send some money in our direction. This is an amazing, amazing song. Uh, It could so easily have been cheesy or chintzy. And as Rich pointed out, it did create the template for a thousand cheesy, chintzy bedroom songs, uh, none of which have ever worked for me. But the first time they did it right, the song is just a litany of great hooks, almost a never-ending chorus. And Marvin sings it so interestingly in such a stunning variety of vocal styles. Uh, little tangent here. It's a great song in so many ways, but my favorite aspect has always been the drumming. Uh, and I finally looked up today who did it. It's session drummer Paul Humphrey. For the whole song, he's as interesting as Marvin. He's almost playing lead drums, but never in a way that distracts from Marvin. Towards the end of the song, there's a drum break that just knocks me out every time. Oh, Paul Humphrey had an interesting career as a session drummer. He played on Frank Zappa's Hot Rats album. He played on the Steely Dan track Black Cow, and even on a Jerry Garcia live album, which makes him a very discord and rhyme drummer. Uh, that's also him. Yeah, on that the, covers all the bases. Yeah, that's also him on the Joe Cocker classic Feeling All Right. I believe the bass line, which uh, John pointed out, which is much simpler and which keeps pace the whole time with Gay and Humphrey, is played by Wilton Felder, who was also responsible for the mammoth bass line on I Want You Back by the Jackson 5. Uh, But in sum, this is an amazing song. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of Motown, the complete number one's disc four. We are 40% done if we see this entire project through and get to the boys to men at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, the creamy nugget at the center. (laughs) Uh, Okay, but in the meantime, we're going to be jumping back to another comp. So next comp, we are going to be going through the Numero Group's 2005 power pop compilation, Yellow Pills Prefill. Because sometimes you just want some catchy music, damn it. (laughs) Yeah, this should be a relaxing one. Yeah, after all this Motown. (laughs) After this year, Ben, after this year. (laughs) 
Roll credits. What do you call this record with all these songs? This is Kong. Yeah, yeah. This is Kong. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening to This Is Comp, a subsidiary of the Discord and Rhyme podcast. You can find back episodes of this series as well as our regular album-focused episodes at discordpod.com. And you can also subscribe to Discord and Rhyme on your podcast app of choice. The opening theme music for this series is The Motown Song by Rod Stewart featuring The Temptations. The closing theme is performed by Kenneth Crayley and based on This Is Pop by XTC, with new lyrics by Adam Smith of The Hector Collectors. And you can hear their music and Kenneth's on bandcamp.com. Editing and production is by me, Rich Bunnell. We'll be back with some power pop soon, and in the meantime, be ever wonderful.